Okay. Um, we said there were two cases that seemed to be contradictory. Should we draw this out again? In one case, we had a knife. And what did we use the knife to do? Cut. First, we used the knife to cut. Yeah, we used the knife to cut something. What did we cut first with the knife? First, we cut. No, first we cut a piece of hot meat. Of meat, generically drawn as a red rectangle, which now infects the knife with meat taste. We then take that foliated knife, and use it to cut a radish, which again is green for parv. Okay. What's the halakha in this case? What do we want to know? We want to know we've got this bowl of yogurt sauce over here. Can we eat the radish with the yogurt sauce? Is the radish fleshic? Does it pick up fleshic case from the knife? And the answer is yes, it does. Good. Okay. We all have to process. Um, a sewer. The second case was as follows. You have a plate, a serving platter, with, again, our generically rectangular piece of meat, hot, on the platter. What happens to the platter? It absorbs glacial taste. And now, what do you put on the platter? A piece of fish. platter. And a Pariv, piece of fish. One would think that there would be no difference between the pariv piece of fish and the pariv radish. And therefore, if you come along and you want to eat the pariv fish with the same bowl of yogurt sauce that you want to dip your radish in, the answer would once again be a sewer. The fish is hot, by the way. Okay. What is the halakha in this case? Mutar. Mutar. Okay. With hot fish. With hot fish. Not just cold. Not just cold. Okay. Hot fish. This drives my wife crazy. Because <laughs> we'll take a plate that we just served Fleischig on, and then we will put, I don't know. Here's where it really came up. I wanted to make tart taten. Right? What do you do? You, anybody make that? You, you make... You cook apples in a pan, and then as the apples are cooking, you quickly drape over it a pastry uh, pastry shell, and you put it in the oven, and then when you take it out of the oven, it's really dramatic, you put a platter over it, and you flip it over, okay? Um, so there's my first oven, of food, hot on this fleshic platter, and now as I'm serving it, I say, wow, that would be really good with ice cream. And okay, and the answer is yes. She says, How can that be? It's a flashing platter. You take food from a flashing platter and you're served with ice cream. We tend to be a little OCD about <laughs> basar and kalaf, with good reason. Right? It's a pretty stringent, uh, pretty serious uh, prohibition. And yet, in this case, it's mutar because we say it's not bar not. Are we saying mutar only in 
the Gemara's level, or are we referring to contemporary level? No, this is actually how we Pascha. Actually, have, but it is it is well the concept of meat equipment or dairy equipment or that yes okay not, good not good thank absolutely. you this is if you if you if you're up on your kashrut uh, issues this is exactly the issue that we talk about when we talk about meat equipment or dairy equipment there are some kashrut organizations for example the OK sometimes is this true the OK let's say it is. Okay, you'll see underneath, we'll say D-E. What is D-E? Dairy equipment. Dairy equipment. Is it really dairy? No. What does that mean? D-E means, in halachic terminology, not, bar, not. What's the point of saying anything? Uh, Okay, if it's not bar, not, then what? Depends I, on the situation. Sorry, I can eat it. Okay, it depends. Is it only Bidyevad? Sorry? Is it only Bidyevad or all? Bidyevad must have like it's tricky here. Yes, it is only Bidyevad. Okay, so it could be that since it's done deliberately on dairy equipment, therefore, Bidyevad, I shouldn't eat it with meat. Okay, it depends what's considered Bidyevad or Bidyevad. Okay, Bidyevad, I guess I should let my turn. Bidi Avad, or Bidi Eved, as it's usually pronounced, means after effect. Most of Kashrut, most of the laws of Kashrut is, are Bidi Abed, right? They're after effect. Tray food fell into my mixture. What's the halakha now? They are not. Lichatchiva, which has no good English translation, and therefore we use the Latin ab initio, meaning to start with. Okay? You may not put trait food in your mixture, even if it will be not Can you deliberately put harif, hot harif fish on a fleshic platter knowing that you will eat it with dairy? That depends on the circumstances. So when you see DE, it may be saying, depending on the kind of food it is, lechatchila, you should not eat it with meat, but b'dievet, if you did, it's okay. Because, hang on one more second, what would you think if it said, okay, d? And you could never eat it. And you could never eat it with fleshik. Okay? That if you had an okay, d, hot dog bun, and you put a hot dog on it, throw it away. But if it's okay, de, then it's fine. Some cultural organizations will label things DE, others, famously the OU, will not. Let us say D? The OU will just say D. Oh. Okay. They say it's too confusing. Oh. Okay. But for DE, like for practical purposes, it just it just it's basically part. It basically. Okay. And the other really important thing to know is if it says DE and you just ate meat, and you wait however long after a meat meal before eating dairy, D is just fine. Okay. There is no problem eating something that's dairy equipment after a meat meal. None whatsoever. Can you bring it? Okay. Just another important thing to know. We tend to separate dairy and meat into absolute categories and not are not confused with that picture. Okay. Last time we said you do, sorry, you had a question. No, no. Okay. Hang on, let me just hold off another question because I want to get to the point here. Last time we said, how are we defining not bar not? 
Rashi said it's two taste transfers. Where's the first taste transfer? From the plate, from the meat into the plate. And the second taste transfer is from the plate into the fish. This is taste transfer number one and taste transfer number two. If by the point of the second taste transfer, the taste is still mutar, it's still permitted taste, there's nothing wrong with having fish that picks up a little meat taste, that's fine. If it's still mutar at that point, then you're allowed to put it in the milk. Okay? That's what not barnat means according to Rashi. This is primary taste transfer. And this is secondary taste transfer. And the, actually, the proper term is not just not barnat, it's not barnat dehetebra. Secondary taste transfer of permitted taste. It's the meat taste that's going from the meat into the platter and then from the platter into the fish. Um, it would be different, hold on one more second, it would be different if I had the following case. So it was like pork on the plate? Yes, that's exactly what I was going to say. Okay, if instead of meat, I had oranges for trait and a piece of pork. And the pork taste got absorbed into the plate. And now I took the same plate and served anything hot on it. That is secondary taste transfer, but it's not mutar. Okay, if I now take fish or anything else and put it on this plate, that is asur. Why? We call this not bar not de isura. This is secondary taste transfer of prohibited taste, and that's a problem. Yeah, good question. I was just wondering, is it really about the taste, as you say, or like you get confused between the taste and the physical meat touching something like dirt? You know what I mean? Basically, we talked about in previous classes, it seems to really be about taste. And we questioned whether, in fact, you can, whether, in fact, the fish does pick up the meat taste. But it does really seem to be about the taste that gets absorbed in the plate and then exuded into the fish. Okay? It does not seem to be about the possibility that you might put the fish next to the meat. Okay? Again, we question to what extent that is scientifically supported, whether, whether in fact things do pick up taste, and we said in some cases yes, in some cases not really. Um, but, but we, I want to leave that aside because we, we discussed it in previous classes, okay? But I do want to get to that point because the way this gets explained in other Rishonin brings us back to exactly that question. Is this real taste? And the answer is yes. Okay, hold on just a sec. We also noted, is, is this distinction between, I guess we should number these cases. Is that second plate hot? Is that first plate hot? Yeah, everything's hot. Okay. Is the distinction between the first, the, the these two platter cases clear? Not Barnata Hetera versus not Barnata Isura. What was the alternative to primary and secondary? Alternative to Rashi? 
Oh, we'll, we'll get there. Oh. We haven't gotten there yet. Okay. Rashi, by the way, so if this distinct, this difference is clear. Sorry, can we explain the difference between the why this one's a sword and the other one's a sword? The top two, not the bottom. No, I'm not sure. Yeah, okay. So I'm racing the bottom case. Let's talk, just remind ourselves briefly about the top case. What makes the radish case problematic? Uh, why is that a sewer? So Rashi actually has a problem because technically this should be the same thing. Primary taste transfer into the knife and secondary taste transfer from the knife into the radish. It's still a mutar, it's still permissible taste, it's just meat taste. Who cares if the radish tastes a little fleshic? It's not barnat to hetero. And therefore, what does Rashi do? Rashi has to marshal a whole set of assumptions here. Either it's not just absorbed taste, either there is actual meat residue on the knife when you cut the radish. Okay, that's an assumption that Rashi's making. He assumes that knives don't get cleaned. Or, or that it's hard to clean knives. Or, by the way, if you've ever heard the, uh, I can't resist because this is, yes, good. That's the oldest, the, the oldest old wives trick uh, that, that gets misrepresented. To kosher a piece of silverware, many people think that you stick it in a flower pot, right? Uh, okay. Um, right, cough. No, it, it's <laughs> not true, except in this case. If the problem here is that the knife is still, there's actual residue on the knife, and in the absence of, say, um, Dawn double act, you know, double, uh, double strength uh, soap or steel wool or something that would really be effective, uh, it would be hard to get the residue off the knife. The solution is to to really stick it in a piece of in a in a plot of hard earth that would get the residue off the knife. That's where that notion comes from, and it's effective specifically in this case. We talk about cleaning uh, cleaning something off the surface. It's literally just cleaning. It's not like just cleaning. If anything was not koshering, it's not koshering the knife. It's really just cleaning the knife. And for the kalipa, when that's required, it's not sufficient for that. Or is it, or is it no, the same no, idea? no, it's a different idea. Different idea. Different idea. Different idea. Yeah, the, the there's talking about absorption. This is not absorption. Okay. Um, or Rashi says the combination of the sharpness of the knife of the radish and the, the the sharpness of the radish and the pressure of the knife is more effective than the heat of the fish. In other words, Rashi suggests that the combination of physical factors here is more effective at, at, at inducing taste transfer than the heat of the fish in the second case. It's that friction, why should consider this friction? Right, the friction of the knife and the sharpness of the radish combined. So instead of just having a regular secondary taste transfer, you have a greater degree of secondary taste transfer. This is a really strong secondary taste transfer. So essentially, you have a super taste transfer that is equivalent to a secondary super taste transfer that is equivalent to <coughs> primary taste transfer. Convincing? <laughs> I, I, I won't. I won't make you answer. Yeah. So, 
by that answer, though, if you had the fish example, but instead of it being in a place it's plate, it was a place it's knife. So now you have heat plus knife pressure, which is clearly better, more powerful than heat plus sharpness, because sharpness on its own doesn't do anything. So heat is better than sharpness. So heat plus knife is clearly far greater than than knife plus sharpness, and should also be a sword. Once, once you acknowledge that it's an exception, this is what we talked about last time, once you acknowledge that it's an exception, it can be a paradigm for other cases. Well, if this combination of the sharpness of the knife and the pressure of the knife and the sharpness of the radish yields a super taste transfer, well, what about some other combination, right? A patricianist attack of feeding. Why don't we consider it? It's a That's type how we of heat. It's not enough heat. I, 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 I might I'm not sure. That could be. Could That's be. how they saw it. Uh, I'm not sure that's how they saw it. That's a big jump. Okay. Our assumption, again, we, we, we have not gotten into questions of, too many questions of development of science over time, but one should never assume the way we think of science is the way they thought of science in, in medieval times. That's, that's, a, that's a big assumption to make. Yeah, but yeah. No, I was going to say, if we're going to go back to the fact that kosher is like a legal formalism kind of thing, then this is sort of a nitty-gritty exception to be made. It's a nitty-gritty exception. What is Rashi doing, really? Rashi's going, stepping out of the formal aspect, one taste transfer, two taste transfers. That's very formal. That's very rigid. And now he's being more flexible to explain this case. He's thinking about the physical factors in a kind of quasi-scientific way, right? Let's look at Tosos, because this, this, this effect uh, is, is magnified in Tosos, and Tosos, I think, gives a more satisfying solution. But the irony is that this piece of Tosos is actually quoted in the name of Rashi. Okay, this is the source sheet from last time. If you don't have it, if you do you not have it, um, let me... Um, yeah, here, if you want to share. Okay. Um, Tosa says as follows. Rivan, Rashi, son-in-law, explains the name of Rashi. Rashi had daughters, three sons-in-law, all of whom were uh, noted, uh, noted uh, Talmudic scholars, and one of them, the Rivan, maybe the most famous, explained this Gemara as follows. The Gemara's ruling applies only to fish that were served on a fleshic utensil. But if they were cooked in a flacious utensil, they may not be eaten with dairy, for the meat taste absorbed during the cooking process is considered primary taste transfer. This whole business of prime of not bar not, the case here is where you serve the meat or the fish on the platter. What would happen instead of serving it on a platter, you cooked it on a pan? Okay, first you saute a piece of meat in a pan. Okay, and the pan absorbs it. And then, in the same pan, you cook a piece of fish. That's because of the heat in the first pan? In both pans. The Rivan says, in this case, the addition of heat would cause the fish to be flaciac. And now, if you wanted to eat your fish with the yogurt sauce, it would be a sore. Why? 
because we consider the meat to have, to have now actually entered in its primary form. We consider this, even though you might say, according to the Rashi that we have on the side of our Gemara, you would say, one taste transfer, two taste transfers. No problem, right? The Rebun says no, because you also need to take into account the intensity of the heat that causes the taste transfer in the first place. This is the warmed up plate. This is, you know, this is just a warmed up plate, yeah, right? This warmed up or like still the hot spot, just not as hot as cooking. This is never going to be as hot, even if you preheat the plates. This is never going to be as hot as this is. The intensity of heat transfer here is obviously greater in the case one, case two, case three. The intensity of heat tank transfer in case three, where you're sauteing meat on a pan and then sauteing fish on the same pan, is never going to be as great as the intensity of heat transfer in case two, where you are placing the meat on a platter and then placing fish on the same platter. Okay. The heat is going to be greater in the third case. The heat is going to be greater. This is going to be. Did I say the opposite? So, more. Sorry. The heat in case three, where you're frying them in the same pan, will be much greater than in case two, where you're just serving them in the same pan. In other words, Rivan is saying you can never just reduce the halakha to a set of formal counting, one taste transfer, two taste transfers. You always need to take the physical characteristics of the case into account. In other words, halakha is always responding to the scientific reality on some level. We don't want, in other words, Rivani is resisting the pull of legal formalism, where we set a set of strict rules and then we keep following them, even when they're out of sync with the scientific reality. He's saying, look, from a scientific perspective, the intensity of the heat is much greater here. And therefore, it makes much more sense to say that case three, the pan, is more similar to case one. If in case one, we're saying with the radish, we're saying the combination of the knife and the radish yields a greater taste transfer, then I should always judge it based on the specific characteristics of that case. And therefore, he distinguishes between fish served on a flachic platter versus fish cooked on a flachic pan or pot. Okay? So this is a homerah. It traces astringency in terms of not bar not to tetera. Most post-game will follow Rashi and say, no, it's just a formal matter of counting taste transfers. The Rivan says, no, ironically quoting Rashi, uh, says, no, uh, it's, it's not simply a matter of counting. You also have to take into, the, into account the intensity of heat. And that's very subjective. Okay? So according to Rashi, the third case would be fine? According to Rashi, the third case would be fine. According to Rashi, the third case with the pans would be no different than the second case with the platters. Okay, again, Rashi on the, Rashi's commentary that we have on the side of our page. Rivan is quoting a different position in the name of Rashi. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Does Rivan give those different characteristics of how of the distinction of at what point it's hot? Now we have two different levels of hot. So you describe them, they say, we do now need a new formal distinction, because after all, this is still a legal system. You can't you know, go measuring how hot it was and how long it was on the fire. and That would be impossible. So we still need a formal distinction. But what's the formal distinction now between case two and case three? Cooking, serving. Cooking versus serving. 
If it's on the fire, if it's in contact with this utensil when it's on the fire, that's cooking. If it's in contact with the utensil when it's off the fire, that's serving. Yeah. So in terms of like practically today though, people, do people eat, you don't, you eat dairy for me, you can eat that with meat. I feel like often you have to do you do it not you can do it after me but not together. Okay. The reason that we're not the reason that Derek one of the reasons Derek is not so simple is because of this homework. Right. Okay. Most again, this is only the opinion of the Rivan, mm-hmm. but it does get brought down in the halachic sources, the Shulchan Aruch and the Ramah, and therefore we Ashkenazim at least are stringent for this position. Lichatchila. Okay. So it takes on the dairy equipment, which was probably cooked on dairy equipment and not just put on dairy equipment after the fact. You would not lechatchiva eat it with meat. Okay, it's only bedieved, then it would be fine. Okay, according to Rivan, even bedieved might not be okay, but because we're only stringent for it. Again, this gets very complicated, which is why we're not doing a practical course in kashrut. If we were, we would get into it, and I'm happy to to explain all of the gritty details uh, the, the, uh, after uh, after class. Um, you should also take into account that it depends on whether this pan was used for meat within 24 hours. How long is the gap between these? That's another factor. Um, et cetera, et cetera. Can you eat them in two different bites? Like Sorry? fish? Can you eat fish? And what is eating with anyway? Is it one on top of the other on the same plate? Two bites next to it? That's also not a simple matter. Okay, But, but we're going to leave that aside. My only point here is the Rivan exemplifies the notion that even once we've separated law from science and we've said that, it, it, that, that, that the, the notion of taste transfer, scientific though it may be in origin, ends up being very formal and rigid as we practice it, there is always the option, and sometimes that option is actualized, of going back to the science and saying, look, there really should be greater taste transfer in this case, or there shouldn't be taste transfer. Should we do that nowadays when we have all sorts of materials that it seems don't actually pick up very much taste? Should we recourse to science and say, look, if what we're really concerned about is absorbed taste, then maybe we should say our stainless steel pots and pans should be able to use for meat and dairy. Wouldn't that be good? Um, there are postgames who have tentatively gone in that direction. Not that they encourage you to buy one set of stainless steel pots and pans and get meat, but in certain cases where something gets mixed up or something in a factory or all sorts of cases you can use your imagination, then we use that as a factor and say, look, how much taste really gets absorbed in the stainless steel pan or pot or a pipe in a factory? Okay? So there are some post game have tentatively moved in that direction. Um, the Jewish world being what it is today, uh, and, and, and the, the notion of anything being unanimous in any way, shape, or form, especially something as major and, and, and that affects as many people as Kashrut, uh, is, is unlikely to, to gather very much steam in the near future. But just to be aware that there are postgames who say, look, here's the science, and we're not going to deny the science, and maybe that should impact the law in some way. But, but some people have one stainless steel net, right? Uh, or if they'll go out and eat somewhere, a sushi bar is stainless steel. Knives in restaurants are another issue, um, and that gets back to case number one. Because if everything is cold, then how could there be taste transfer? The assumption is taste transfer only happens when it's hot. The question is, are they going to be cutting anything that is 
sharp? Okay, that's the question. And how well are they cleaning their knives? That's the issue when it comes to something like a sushi bar, or if you're going out and having your fruit salad. The question is, the question comes down to knives cutting cold food. And yes, there there are many leniencies, but again, the specifics are beyond the scope of this course. Yeah. Um, just clarification to um, case number two being mutar. I assume the fish being served on a different plate. Meaning it was put out on the meat plate, absorbed in the meat you're plate. You're not putting, yes, you're, yeah, not, you putting the over, you're not putting the over sauce on the meat plate. You're just, taking the fish just and dipping it in the plate. Yeah. Okay, yes, yes, thank you. That's, that's a good point. And that knife is not considered fleshy? The knife is fleshy. Considered fleshy knife forever after. <laughs> uh, you have to kosher it. You could not use this now to cut hot cheese. Okay? But for cold, obviously you for cold is not a problem. Right. But, but you would have to caution the knife. Yeah. I realize from your excerpt of, of the refined places that this is not what the refined is saying, but I remember simplistically that cooking a, a, uh, a fleshic pot at a simplistic level is actually, to the mind of one ratio and I recall, we're cooking the meat. No, the meat itself is coming out. Right? Not, not, not so it's a yeah. it's when it's a hot food, a hot food put on a plate doesn't cook the plate. Who absorbs some time? When you're actually putting a plastic pot, you know, a an uh, a maybe within the first 24 hours, right? And it's and it's now uh, you know being recooked. They, you know, someone in in the medieval uh, era would see it as the meat is now coming out. It is it is niflat. And now that is being cooked with that dairy food. And, and that would be a simplistic way. I don't think from the way Tull spoke, you know, Prince Rivon, that the Rivon says that, that have to come across that thought. I hear what you're saying. In other words, they're assuming the meat is still there. I would hesitate to say that, because that, that assumes that you're not distinguishing between the taste and the actual meat. Right. But there is a lot of distinguishing taste and the actual meat. I have to think about that. I have to think about that. Okay. Yeah, okay. Um, one more note, and this is this is my own chidush, this is my own innovative interpretation of the sukya. So if you quote it, you should quote it in my name <laughs> just to make clear that nobody else that I know has ever said this. How is the Rivan going to interpret the words not, bar, not? Noting tam bar noting tam. Rashi said, oh look, it's primary taste transfer, that's one noting tam. Secondary transfer is the secondary tinat tam. But for Rivan, we're never just counting, right? We're actually thinking about the, the, the magnitude of the taste transfer. How would Rivan interpret these words? I think one could understand there is there's a um, Talmudic language sometimes uses the phrase bar x to mean as a diminutive, to mean a small x. For example, the term bar gozva, gozal in Hebrew is a. Sorry? No, not. No, gozal is, is a chick. Oh, uf gozal. Like, like the song uf gozal. Um, of um, new, just, uh, 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 no, no. Sorry. David Brown. No, um, he just passed away this last year. It was on the radio yeah. nonstop. Oh, you're right. You're right. Um, um, no. Yes, I recognize that. Thank you. Right. So, like, it goes out in that song. So, Bar Goeslaw is it goes out as a bird, and Bar Goeslaw is like a, a, a young bird. Okay. 
I want to suggest that according to the Rivan, not bar not means a small mitinat tam. That x bar x can also be used as a diminutive. That he's saying this is a small mitinat tam. Okay. What it's worth. It explains other things in the Gemara, but um, but just because otherwise it's a problem. Um, it's true. That's the only so that's the only case I found of x bar x. Right, but the person I know. We've talked all along about science and the relationship between halacha and science, and now I want to use. The, and we've talked about the way that legal formalism represents a discrepancy or a divergence of law from science and how that necessarily happens with any legal system. As much correlation as we want to have, or as we think we have, between a legal system and science, there is going to be some discrepancy because legal systems develop according to a different dynamic than science. And they have to, because law has to be, as a prescriptive system of behavior, it has to have certain clear boundaries. If you think about the kinds of distinctions we make within law, they're much sharper and clearer than any sort of distinction we can make within science. Asur, mutar, tamay, tahor. Those are unnatural kind of distinctions, because science is all about gradient. It's all about a range. Somewhere within that range, we draw a line and we call it this and we call it that. But science, the, the science doesn't make sharp distinctions between things. What I want to do now is use our discussion of science to finally talk about rationales for kashrut and how our discussion of science can help us understand what a rationale is, how rationales do and do not help us understand kashrut, and also to compare this to other sorts of food restrictions that exist in modern society. Um, I forgot to ask you all to bring a Tanakh, because we're going to be going through that. Can I ask two other people to go out and bring a few Tanakhs? Um, and I forgot something outside. I will be back in just a moment. Um, more or less in order. I want to go through the laws of Kashrut as they appear in the Chumash and look to see what rationales the Chumash itself gives for Kashrut. Okay, we often think of Kashrut as something that is presented as a chok, traditionally a set of laws that has no rationale or no stated rationale. Um, 
I want to start by challenging that notion and talking about the rationales that do, in fact, or things that may, in fact, be considered rationales that appear in the Chumash. Okay? Um, what's the first law of Kashrut that appears in the Torah? Nope. No. Oh, Okay. Sorry. The first law, the explicit law that appears, uh, we'll come back to we'll come back to the the Shevet Mitzvah to the the Noachide laws. But let's start with the laws that that are given to Bnei Israel. We are now in Breshit Lamed Bet Lamed Gimel, Genesis 32, 33, on page 68 in JPS Tanakh. Um, Okay. Al Kain lo yochub bnei Yisrael et gid hanashe asher al kaf hayareich ad hayom azeh ki naga bechaf yarech Yaakov begid hanashe. Thus, that is why the children of Israel to this day do not eat the thigh muscle that is on the socket of the hip, since Jacob's hip socket was wrenched at the thigh muscle, according to the JPS translation. Um, What's the ration? This this pasuk, this verse is the source for the prohibition of gid hanashev, eating what we call the sciatic nerve, uh, which, as we mentioned, is why uh, certainly in the United States uh, we do not uh, uh, kosher slaughterhouses uh, essentially give away the back half of the animal because it's simply too hard to remove the sciatic nerve and all of the nerve offshoots that you would have to remove. It's just not worth their time and money and therefore they give it away. In Israel, uh, they, they tend to take it out uh, more frequently, and therefore there are certain cuts of meat that are available in Israel that are not available in the United States. Um, but, uh, kosher, of course. But um, what? there are certain kosher cuts of meat oh. that are oh, available in Israel that are yeah. not available in the United States, or that are very hard to find. Um, but... Um, but there are certain parts of the, 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 the animal that we don't need at all. Um, what's the rationale? What's the reason here? And how do we know it's a reason? It says that is why. What's why? Because of Jacob's Okay, because... Because what? Because the combatant the angel, presumably, uh, injured Jacob on that part of the thigh. That's so why we don't eat it. So what? How is this a rationale? Okay. It's historical. Okay. So what? To remind us of Jacob's battle. Okay. The simplest thing that we the simplest thing we can say is the following: We have a law. What's the law? To trick people into a kosher steakhouse. Do not, do not eat sciatic nerve. Right? That's correlated with a story, a narrative. The narrative Jacob was injured at. at on the sciatic nerve. 
There is a relationship being posited between these two units of text, okay, or these two units of text, okay. There's the law, that's the law, and there's the narrative. The narrative serves as a rationale for the law. And so that's very illogical, right? So what? So what if Jacob was injured on his thigh? There are so many stories that we could come up with with, with, um, with possible legal ramifications of them, right? Um, um, why do we circumcise? Why do we well, circumcise? Same idea. You gave me a very good idea. No. Mishnah the Sinai means the law was given. And then we Why do we circumcise? That's really what it means. We Why do we circumcise? Jacob over here. Abraham was circumcised. No. Abraham circumcised? Because no. Moshe said God said circumcise. Let's turn back and examine yeah. circumcision as an interesting yeah. parallel. Could that, enough? Could that the Lord is there Hold on. Let's turn back to Parshat Lechlecha. We are now in Breshit Perak Yud Zayin. Sorry, Breshit Perak. Good Zion, Genesis 17. Verse 9. Vera Elohim Abraham, Vatai to Briti Tishmor, Atav Zaracha, Tarechel Zarotan. God said further to Abraham, As for you, you and your offspring shall come throughout the ages, to come throughout the ages shall keep my covenant. Such shall be my covenant, the covenant between you and me and your offspring, which you shall follow, to follow, which you shall keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Why do we circumcise? Because, because it's the covenant. That's what God says. Okay? We are... Why are we told circumcised here? What's the rationale? The rationale is that's the covenant. Okay, we're not going to go into that because it goes beyond kashrut. I want to focus on kashrut. It it does not seem to come from the story. There are biblical scholars who question whether or not there is an alternate source for circumcision when Zipporah, Moshe's wife, circumcises their son. Could that be an alternate historical source? Well, it could be, but the Torah doesn't present it that way. Okay? There's no explicit link there between the story and the law. What's interesting, unique in terms of Hilchot Kashrut, um, about Gid HaNashe, about the sciatic nerve, is that there is an explicit link between these two things. I am not saying, and I do not think it, there, one can conclusively say, that this is a law in search of a meaning, a law in search of a rationale. Which came first? We have no way to know. The way the Torah presents it, this narrative comes first, and then the law follows. But the point I want to make is, there's a relationship here between these two things. That's what makes this a rationale. 
How do you know it's a rationale? Because it uses a very descriptive, it uses a very telling wording. Okay. okay. That suggests rationale. Mm -hmm. So then what we just said earlier about Moshe, I mean, Abraham, that's not a rationale. No. no. The reason we circumcise is not because Abraham did it, but rather because it's a covenant between us and God. But that's not a rationale. That is a rationale. Oh, no. It's not a narrative rationale. Mm. It's not okay. a historical rationale. This is a historical narrative. Mm. History. There could be other kinds of narratives, too. Okay? This is a historical narrative. It's one kind of rationale. It's interesting that the law is that we don't eat it, not that we do eat it. To That's right. If, what about the story mandated that this should be a law? Maybe we should eat it. Maybe we should make a holiday where we all eat the cyanide milk <laughs> because that's what happens to Yaakov. Yeah. Wasn't this a good thing, right? Um, Yaakov gets a new name. God prom, right? I, Yaakov won the battle. Maybe we should. You're right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Um, let's now get into uh, what we think of more as the laws of Peshrut, uh, or more sort of normative rationales. Let's turn to Shemot, Kaf Bet Lamed, Exodus 22.30. Yeah, but there must be like some message behind this, right? Like, okay, hold on. Okay. We're on page 161. Oh, no, sorry. 162. In the JPS. Shmot Kafbet Lamid says Kafbet. The Anshe Kodesh Tihilu Basar Basadet Refalo to Chelu Vakelo Sashlihu Noto. You shall be holy people to me. You must not eat flesh torn by beasts in the field. You shall cast it to the dogs. What's the law? Do not eat torn. Flesh. How do we put the Hebrew term here? Tereifa, which is of course the source of the term. Treif. Okay. What's the rationale? Well, the people don't do that. No, I work in the What's the rationale? Holy people. You are a holy. Okay, you are a holy people to me. Okay. You will be. because it doesn't fit neatly in either of these columns. It's not really legal. Be only people? And it's not, well, it's not, certainly not narrative. Why is it not narrative? No story. There's no story. There's no story. It's not a description. It's a prescriptive statement. I want to say it's also not legal. Why is it not legal? Why is be a holy people not a legal statement? Language will be not legal. Sorry? Why is it not a commandment? You should be not. We have positive commandments too. You must be okay. Um, to you is that he is actually Kurdish. Is Christian to you legally or just prescriptively? Isn't every legal statement also prescriptive? No, no, I mean. How is this different than what we normally associate with the word law? Could there possibly be an American law um, 
be a good person. Totally subjective. Not specific enough, right? What is good? What is holy? What is defining it? What is explaining it? But maybe not. Holy. I want to say this is not legal, but what might we call this if we wanted to distinguish it? Moral or ethical. I want to call it ethical. I don't want to call it ethical instead of moral. Um, moral suggests a universal set of values. This is actually specific to the Jewish people. Kedusha is specific. And ethics can be specific to a certain group. We talk about medical ethics, a code of conduct that doctors follow. Legal ethics. There's a perfect example of where law and ethics are not the same. Legal ethics are things, a code of conduct that lawyers have to follow. Every profession, uh, otherwise they could be disbarred, right? Every profession has its own ethical code. But ethics, and this is, I'm following here, uh, a definition by a legal scholar named Philip Bobbitt. Bobbitt actually talks about ethical arguments in American law. And he says an ethical argument is an argument that relates to what it means to be an American. It's an example of an ethical argument in American law. Sometimes lawyers or judges will invoke the Declaration of Independence, which is not exactly a legal document, but it's a document that tells us a lot about how to be American, what American values are, what American ethics are. Okay? Sometimes they'll quote the Gettysburg Address, which is another very formative, legal, a very formative non-legal document that tells us a lot about America and American culture and American values. Okay, so there's a relationship between law and ethics. Okay, is this really a rationale? It seems to be. Seems like a goal and a method. Or maybe this is a goal and a method. Maybe all the people buy nothing. Okay, but that would make it a reason, right? Why shouldn't you be? Because there's a goal here, and if you don't do this, then you won't fulfill the goal. I want to keep going because we're, I don't want to run short on time, so let's move on to the next example. Um, let's actually look at a parallel example in Dvarim Yudalad Kabbalah. We're going to go out of order here because this example is so similar to the one we just saw. Yudalad Kav Aleph, 1421. This is on page 407 in the JPS Tanakh. 14, you said? Mm-hmm. 21. Page 407. Lo tofu kol nevela lager asher b'sharech ha-tikne la ve'achava, o machor v'nachri ki am kadosh atal ha-shem Okay, we'll leave off the end of the Pasuk, which we'll get to come back to in two minutes. You shall not eat anything that has died a natural death. Give it to the stranger in your community to eat, or you may sell it to a foreigner. For you are a consecrated, you, you are a people consecrated to the Lord your God. Here it's, do not eat an animal that has died a natural death that the Torah calls a nevelah. Uh, tangent. In 
the Torah's terminology, torn flesh, an animal that's been killed, is a trefa, and an animal that's died a natural death is a nevelah. In the language of Hazal, the sages, these terms, the meaning of these terms is reverse. A nevelah is torn flesh, an animal that has been killed by some means other than halakhic slaughter, whereas trefa comes to mean an animal that has died a natural death sickness or old age. How that happens is far beyond the scope of this course, but just be aware that when you read these words in the Torah in the language of Chazal, they get completely reversed. What's the rationale here? Because you're a holy people. Okay? Essentially the same thing. The holiness is very central to Kashrut in the Torah. Okay? Even as we look for other rationales, we will keep coming back to Kedushah, holiness, as one very important factor. Okay? And these two psukim exemplify that very clearly. Yeah. Is there any way we can take all of these laws that refer you know, to be a holy people and like kind of take the common denominator to define? That's what we're going to try to do. Okay. Okay, let's look at another example. Let's go back to a much more detailed section. Vayikra Yud Bet Mem Bet Leviticus 12.42 This is at the end of a long list of uh, prohibited species or permitted and prohibited. 1243. You shall not draw abomination upon yourselves through anything that swarms. You shall not make yourselves unclean therewith and thus become unclean. Why are we not allowed to eat shratzim, crawling things? Contaminated. Sorry. We will become contaminated. Okay. We will become. Um, we will become. Uh, there are actually two verbs here that are used. The, the nouns are turned into verbs. The or. Return, returned into verbs. We will be, um, we will be uh, abominating ourselves or contaminating ourselves. There's something about ingesting these creatures that that contaminates us. Okay. How does that compare to what we saw before about holiness? Well, the next pasuk. Okay, the next pasuk comes back to holiness. Let's just look at that since Thor mentioned it. For I am the Lord your God, you shall sanctify yourselves and be holy, for I am holy. Why are we commanded to be holy people? Because God is holy. You shall not make yourselves unclean through any swarming thing that moves upon the earth. Okay, so here we have a commandment. Do not eat warming creatures and perhaps other unclean animals, non-kosher animals also. 
there is a connection with holiness, but there is also a connection with something else. You shall If you eat these, you will be contaminated. That's the connection. So that's in like the fourth column? There's another column. Why did I put it in a different column? Is this really ethical? Is this narrative? There's no story, really. Is it ethical? What's contaminated? What is contaminated mean? So notice that the structure. Is, notice that the way I've structured this. I'm trying to stay as close to the text as possible. Um, the way the sentence is structured is different than the other ones that we had. There is an if-then here. There is a cause and effect that doesn't seem to be related to ethics. Right? It's not just about us. It's almost as though this is a natural cause and effect. What might we call this idea? Casuistic law? Casuistic. Case law. Why is it case law? Um, it's not just like a one, you know, do this or don't do this statement. It's presenting a, you know. Oh, you're saying if they, there's an if then structure like yeah. case law. Yeah. But this is not case law because it's true. Case law has if then structure. But if then structure in case law is if this happens, then do that. This. What kind of if-then structure is this? What does it remind you of? It's a consequence, right? Right? It's, it's, it's consequence. What kind of consequence is it? A natural consequence. A natural consequence? Is it a punishment? It's an authority. You're, you're too wise to mind. I, I wish I might get it. It's not a punishment. It's a consequence. Right? Really, I mean, it's a punishment. Um, no, I'm not sure if this consequence it sounds like it's really a consequence. It, 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 what do we mean by a consequence? Your doctor tells you, if you eat this, you will get sick. That's a consequence. What kind of consequence is that? Cause and effect. That's, that's, but what kind is it? Scientific. Your doctor speaks to you from a medical perspective. He's saying scientifically, based on our understanding of the way the world works, if you eat this, based on your physical state, you will get sick. Right? Um, this has that kind of structure. Yeah, the question is, is it scientific? We might call it spiritual. Spiritual. Ritual. We might call it metaphysical. Metaphysical is interesting because it retains the physics aspect, but it's above physics. It's somehow related to the natural world, but on a plane that we can't sense with science. It's really not here. So it's not natural. It's not natural. I, I, I wouldn't call it scientific, um, but maybe I'm wrong. Okay, That's the rationale. This, in turn, is connected to Kedusha. Why shouldn't we contaminate ourselves? Why can't we say, go ahead, contaminate yourselves all you want? Because we're supposed to be holy people. Okay. So it is connected to Kedusha, but it's connected through this notion of metaphysical or spiritual contamination. Okay. Let's do one more. Um, 
In Vayikra, still in Vayikra, 17, Parakyud Zayin, Pasuk Yud. Page 248 in JPS Tanakh. If anyone from the house of Israel or the strangers partakes of any blood, I will set my face against the person who partakes of the blood, and I will cut them off from among his kin. Eating blood is bad news in the Torah. Okay? God takes that very seriously. We have a language that we don't find by any of the other laws of Kashrut. Why? For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have assigned to you for making expiation for your lives on the altar. In other words, blood is given to us to sprinkle on the altar as part of the atonement for our sins. It is blood as life that affects expiation. Okay, what's the rationale for not eating blood? It's associated with life. Blood is associated with life. Okay, I like the way you said that. The Torah says blood is life. But let's sort of take a step back from that. Blood is associated with life. Why is blood associated with life? What brings the, when the Torah says blood is life, we can we can take that for the moment as a metaphor, sort of speak figuratively. What makes us associate blood with life so strongly that we are willing to say blood is life or the life blood of somebody? Scientific. Oxygen. Uh, we understand it on one level that it gives you oxygen, and we think of oxygen as life, right? The, even before the, before the ritual, okay? Life, life, blood is life. Why? When you die, when you die, you lose blood, right? Um, blood, loss of blood is associated with death, and therefore retention of blood is associated with life. Okay, this is a very, very powerful uh, notion, and one that is not unique to Judaism. If we can call this, if we can call this ethical in a specifically Jewish sense, now we can say that we have a moral concept. I'm going to erase the top there. Now we can say that we have a moral code. Do not eat. Blood. Why? Because this is specifically Jewish, and this is universal. Not for Gentiles. What? Okay. Not for Gentiles. Avoid blood. I'm going to say that it is. Okay. Okay. It's not related to something. What's absent here? What's missing? Kedusha. There's no mention of Kedusha here. Right? Which suggests to me that it's more universal. It's true. Non Jews are not commanded not to eat blood yet. Okay? We'll look back in a minute and see there is something that, that even non Jews are commanded to do. Do not eat blood. Why? Because blood is life. Okay? Am I 
life is holy? Sorry? And life is holy? Life is not holy. Okay. Did you see anything about holiness no, here? Okay. Say life is holy. Life is life. Okay? Life <laughs> seems to be self-justifying. Life is a value in and of itself. But, okay, and there's also the ritual element, okay, where blood is given to us. Blood does serve a purpose. We do use blood for something. We don't use blood for it, not to eat, but... We use it as a sacrifice, okay? To as if one very compelling interpretation of sacrifices. It's as if we're sacrificing ourselves on the altar, and it's as if our blood is going on the altar, right? If we could offer ourselves to God, we would instead we give a substitute. The paradigm for that being, of course. Yitzhak, where Yitzhak is substituted on the altar with the ram. Okay? So, we have now a relationship between a law and a moral precept. The point of all this is, what makes something a rationale? What makes it a rationale is there's an association between the law and something that is non-legal. It can be narrative, it can be ethical, it can be moral, it can be metaphysical. It's got to be something non-legal. That's what makes something a rationale. That's what gives a law meaning. Absorb that for a minute. Yeah. But what would it mean if the word like what would is there could you give an example of something that would be legal that would do you know what I mean? To contract it to the not legal? What would what would not be a rationale <coughs> if there were another law? If I had a law, if I said, don't eat that meat because it's a nivela. <coughs> right? I'm justifying a law by a law. Right. Right? We don't think of that as a rationale. That's right. That's one law dictating another law. Don't eat. Uh, we had the example we talked about the blood last week. Uh, salt your blood for the amount of time that it takes to, uh, to for for a certain amount of time. Why that amount of time? Because that's the amount of time it takes to roast meat. Okay, that's not a rationale. That's an analogy between two laws. So is the rationale for salting meat for that amount of time because that's the amount of time it takes to roast it? That's not what we think of as a rationale. That's an analogy. Okay? In order to have meaning for law, you need to step outside of law. You need to have something else. And just these examples give us a sense of what constitutes a rationale. Okay? How would... Ah, and I wanted to talk about blood. Where do we see... Where else does blood come up? The notion of blood as life as a rationale for something. Murder, yes. And associated with murder, we're going to turn back to the Noahide laws in Persia Noah. Bereshit Parakatet. Chapter 9, verse 5. Uh, sorry, verse 3. We have here actually an interesting phenomenon. In the aftermath of the flood, God tells Noah something mm-hmm. curious. Every creature that lives shall be yours to eat. As with green grasses, I give you all these. What is God telling Noah at this point in time? Go ahead. You don't have to be vegetarian anymore. You don't have to be vegetarian anymore. You can eat meat. 
Up until this point, it seems, man was commanded to be vegetarian. And now, for the first time in history, man is permitted to eat meat, with the following caveat. You must not, however, eat flesh with its lifeblood in it. How is that interpreted by the sages? What is that? What is that commandment? The prohibition of Avar min hachai to eat a limb that is torn off a live animal. That's on the Torah? That, that's how they interpret this, oh, but that, this verse. That concept is on the Torah? That's how they're understanding yeah. this. Is that, is that not shot, shot in the Pasuk? Is no. that not the simple meaning of the verse? I'm not sure. Okay. You might say that non-Jews are also commanded that they have to salt their meat to get the blood out. But you could understand it as meaning while the animal is alive, you can't eat it. Or while the animal is alive, this thing is torn off, but you can't eat that. I don't, think, I don't think it's so far from the simple meaning of the text. Why? And what's, what else is this connected to? But for your own lifeblood, for a human life, I will require a reckoning. I will require to every beast, a man too will require a reckoning for human life, of every man and that of his fellow man. Okay? In other words, there's a connection between respect for animal life and respect for human life. Again, that's why I'm calling this a universal moral code. Blood is life. You're allowed to eat animals with certain restriction. You have to have certain respect for animal life. You have to slaughter them before you eat them. You have to have even more respect for a human life. If you kill a human, then you will be punished. Okay? So, one aspect of kashrut is very clearly tied up with respect for life. We see that in terms of the prohibition to eat blood, we see that in terms of the universal prohibition of Abraham and Achai, of a limb torn off a live animal. Um, that's one very prominent stream in one very prominent rationale. The other is this rationale of the only people and the subcategory of not contaminating yourselves with certain kinds of animals. Okay. Those are the two main rationales for kashrut that we see in the Torah. Again, all of them invoking some non-legal precept, be it a story, ethical precept, metaphysical concept, to justify, explain, rationalize, what have you, the laws of kashrut. And now the question I pose to you is, the question I've been waiting to pose to you all along, <laughs> how satisfying are these? Because I started the course by saying that I was sitting in a room with a bunch of other rabbis and we were talking about kashrut, and nobody could really come up with what everybody in the room felt was a satisfying rationale for kashrut. So I pose the same question to you. How satisfying are these as rationales for kashrut? What do they do for you? What do they not do for you? Yeah. From tonight's discussion, what hit me is the juxtaposition, as you demonstrated, with Kedusha to Kashrut. Kedusha is said another time in the Torah in, in, by, uh, in, in, in Parshish Yisro in uh, chapter page 153, chapter 19, uh, verse 6. This is a preface to, uh, to receive the Torah. And again, here too, we are called Goy Kadosh. So what, what, what hit me tonight in your response is 
you know, kashrut is just another mitzvah, right? But it's not. It's not. It is. It's not. It's not considered an oath, you know, like tefillin and Shabbat and and drinking on men. But it, it, it has this this cardinal status because kedusha is said in so many places, and that's you know is. It's, it's, it's the same word. You are going kadosh because you receive the Torah. You are going kadosh because you don't need trace from the Vela, Shirasim, etc. In other words, you find this enlightening because it explains to you what kadusha adds to our lives as Jews. Well, that's, I, I appreciate your rephrasing. I'm saying how God you know, just like I gave you the Torah to be holy. This is the cardinal principle of the Torah. This is Kedusha. Yeah. Okay. Good. I mean, I understand the Kedushin to you aspect of it, and that, that makes sense to me that like we do a lot of things that are specifically to separate us and to make us the um, Kedusha we're supposed to be. However, it kind of questions why we're, like, how we're doing it the way we're actually practicing it today. Because if it were just to be separate and holy, we wouldn't need the technicalities and all the laws we go into. And if that's the case, that it's about being holy and separate, it doesn't seem like we're doing it right. Okay. One conspicuous weakness of all of these is it does not explain the details. Right? These are all very general, with the one exception of Yidhanasha, and possibly with the exception of Blot. These are all very general. And when we think about the rationale for kashrut, one of the things that we want to find is all of the details that govern so many aspects of our lives. What is the reason for them? In other words, a rationale, we expect to add meaning so that we can think about something while we're practicing kashrut. We also want it to be intimately connected with the details of kashrut. For example, as a modest example, we would want it to explain why certain animals are considered to be kosher rogers or non-kosher. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. What about being kadosh means eating these animals and not eating those? This is, of course, a topic of much scholarly debate. Some of the sources I've given you on the page that I handed out today. And unfortunately, we don't have time to read through all of them. But let's just highlight one. Uh, did I give out all of them? Okay. Um, for example, let's look at Biakida Yitzchak. Biakida Yitzchak, or Yitzchak Arama, lived in um, 15, uh, 15th century Spain. Um, in his book, Akidah Yitzchak, writes as follows The reason behind all the dietary prohibitions is not that any harm may be caused to the body. But these foods defile and pollute the soul and blunt the intellectual powers, thus leading to confused opinion and a lust for perverse and brutish appetites, which lead men's destruction, thus defeating the purpose of creation. And these specific animals do that. <laughs> How does he know that? How does he know that? Okay. Where is he getting that from? Presumably here, right? If you eat these, you will be contaminated. But he does not give a detailed explanation of why that should be so. Just as the human spirit is the instrument which God uses to make himself known in the world, so the human body is the medium which connects the outside world with the mind of man. You are what you eat. 
Anything which gives the body too much independence remains too active in a carnal direction brings it nearer the animal sphere, thereby robbing it of its primary function, to be intermediary between the soul of man and the world outside. Bearing in mind this function of the body, and also the fact that the physical nature of man is largely influenced by the kind of food he consumes, one might come to the conclusion that the vegetable food is most preferable, as plants are the most passive substance. And indeed, we find that Jewish law, all vegetables are permitted for food without discrimination. So he is accounting for one detail of kosher that we haven't discussed very much. All vegetables are kosher, right? There are no vegetables that are not considered to be kosher. Yeah? That is interesting. There are cultures in the world that prohibit certain kinds of fruits and vegetables. Judaism is not one of them. We limit the amount of meat that we eat. Okay? Meat is lustful. Meat influences our mindset in certain ways that he finds to be destructive. That may be a little more convincing. To not everybody. To not that Hitler was a vegetarian. This is not a guarantee. <laughs> but we may use this, in the interest of time, I'm just going to ask you a whole question. As much as I desperately want your input, I really do, but I just want to get through a certain amount of material and then after class I'm available to talk and whoever else wants to stay. Um, it is also interesting that, at least in terms of the mammals and the birds that we're allowed to eat, all of them are vegetarians. Now, I hear you cry. But they're meat. We're eating the meat. They may be vegetarians, but we're eating the meat. Um, there is something in the text that we've seen, the gradual development from Breshit, where man is given the right only to eat vegetable matter, to Noah, where man is given the right to eat meat, to the laws of Kashrut, where the, the kinds of meat that we may eat, and the parts of the animal that we may eat, i.e. not blood and other parts of the animal, are limited. There is something to the notion that there's a sort of concession to mankind to eat meat, but we sort of uh, project our vegetarian ideals on the kind of meat that we eat. Okay? Yeah, that sounds strange. But if there is a symbolic element there. We only eat mammals and birds that are themselves vegetarian, symbolizing a sort of vegetarian ideal. Now, anybody who's been to a kosher catered fair any time in the <laughs> recent past can attest to the fact that we have moved very far from any sort of vegetarian ideal. But it exists out there as a kind of rationale within halakha that accounts for some of the details of the halachic system. Okay? Um, and exists also in a kind of ideal form in certain eschatological texts, texts that relate to the days of Mashiach, for example. In Yeshayahu, what do we find when he talks about the days of Mashiach? Vigar ze'evim keves benamer in Yirbat. Fact, right? Uh, in Isaiah chapter 7, I think. And the little kid will be there. Yeah, right? In other words, that in the time of the Messiah, all, even the animals will be vegetarian. There is this notion of vegetarianism, of not eating meat, that exists as a kind of, as a kind of ideal that we are not yet able to live up to. The most interesting text on this theme is, of course, Ruth Cook's essay on vegetarianism. Uh, Ruth Cook himself was not a vegetarian, but he did that with the amount of meat that he ate. And when he was asked by somebody, should they be a vegetarian, he said, we're not at that level yet. 
but he very much emphasized this notion that in the time of Mashiach, vegetarianism will again return to be the norm, perhaps even to the point where we will no longer offer animal sacrifices. Okay? This is a concession to man because of man's cruel tendencies. Um, we could expand on that, but we don't have time. Um, that we are given the right to eat meat as an expression, of, as, 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 a, as a permitted area for us to, 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 to perform acts that could be called um, there's much more to talk about in terms of the relationship between kashrut and vegetarianism, okay? um, and the relationship, indeed, between kashrut and other possible modern food movements. Vegetarianism is interesting because if you do a quick Google search for uh, vegetarianism, vegetarian cross-contamination, what you will find is vegetarians uh, the sun vegetarians are extremely strict about cross-contamination with meat products. Um, I learned this when uh, I worked I, when, my, uh, when I was working in a lab in college. Uh, my boss was vegetarian, and she refused to eat uh, vegetarian dumplings that were cooked in the same pot as meat dumplings. And I thought, wow, that's so from. But it turns out. That that's actually a standard in uh, you know for vegetarian organizations. They say you can't use the same serving utensils because of cross contamination. You have to worry about splattering when you put vegetarian and meat food together. They are remarkably similar to kashrut standards. Is that consistent with the rationale for somebody being a vegetarian? Why are people vegetarians after all? Many different reasons. Just like we have many different reasons for keeping kosher. You will notice that just as there is no one exclusive reason to be to keep kosher, there is no one exclusive reason to be vegetarian. And if you ask somebody why they're a vegetarian, their reasons might change, or they might have more than one reason at any given point in time. No two rationales are mutually exclusive, because I can always take a legal framework and talk about ethical or moral, what else could we put here in terms of reasons that somebody is vegetarian? Environmental, right? If there were an environmental factor the kosher roots, not obviously of the Torah, but maybe. Uh, vegetarians, there are certain men vegetarians who do it for environmental reasons, because meat consumes more energy and requires creates more greenhouse gas, etc., etc., etc. When we talk about cross-contamination, does that really correlate? Do the, do the people's reasons for being vegetarian really correlate with that? Is it really going to hurt them? Are they hurting more animals because their veggie burger was splattered by the meat from somebody's steak? What you notice when we think about rationales is we have these rationales. They inform why we do what we do. When we get to the details, we find the same phenomenon with rationales that we do with science. The legal system necessarily moves in its own direction. The details are the result of the interplay between different laws and needing to set boundaries, what is vegetarian, what's not vegetarian, what is contaminated by meat, what's not contaminated by meat. Uh, my sister and brother are both of celiac, and they uh, don't eat gluten as a result. And I asked my sister what's considered to be contaminated by gluten, and she said, 20 parts per million, right? Now, there's a scientific rationale there, because for somebody with celiac, gluten is actually dangerous. The 20 parts per million is, again, just a sort of arbitrary figure. It's the gluten equivalent of Basel <laughs> 
In other words, any system of eating restrictions will necessarily devolve into or develop into a legal system that is at least partially cut off from everything else that it is correlated with. Rationales will never explain all of the details why we do what we do because of the nature of legal system that is fundamentally different than narrative or ethics or moral environmental or anything else. Legal systems have to be designed a certain way in order to function. Ethics, for example, is far too broad to dictate specific categories in specific situations. Even something like metaphysics, if we could know what exactly we were contaminating our bodies with or how the mechanism of contamination worked, we might be able to figure something out, but of course we can't. And even science, which is the most precise of all of the systems that we've correlated law with, Science. Do not eat blood. Right? Well, we need a scientific definition for blood. And we said that at some point the scientific definition of blood and the legal definition of blood are not going to be exactly the same. So, anytime you have a system of eating restrictions, it will necessarily develop independently of the other rationales that it has. What's a rationale? Something that informs that uh, our observance of a set of laws and gives meaning to it, even if it doesn't explain all the details that, uh, that, that the legal system possesses. There's much more to talk about. There are more sources to read, and I encourage you uh, to, to do your own searches and think about the things you talk about. Um, if you're looking for more guidance, feel free to email me, and I'm happy to provide you with some of the things that I've read and have time to present. Daniel.Reichman at gmail. Please don't be offended if I don't respond to you within the first say, day, week, or in this case, month, as I'm going back to Israel to be with my family and haven't seen them in a while. Um, but I will be never get back to you, so be persistent. Um, and um, it's been a pleasure having you. For those who would like to stay for a few more minutes of discussion, uh, we can put them forward questions and uh, Take this in any direction if you want. Yeah, go ahead. Um, what's the problem? But being vegetarian is technically the ideal. Since when you infer not, like, why wouldn't that then be the ideal and that's what's done? Like, since when we're saying it's the ideal, but who cares? It's not the ideal and who cares. Um, it's the ideal, and we recognize that human nature is not, um, not, um, capable of adhering to that. That's not to say that no one person can, that human society in general. But you could argue that about probably half the halal what we do, that if they weren't actually what was practiced, like you could say, is that really practical? Would human nature be able to handle that amount of laws and whatever, but we do it and somehow you could, we do? You could. And this is something that the Torah... This is the wisdom of the Torah. This is the divine wisdom that dictates that, that, that has determines that human nature is such. Um, the same question comes up by other areas of law, and sometimes the commentaries say, yes, it's a concession. The Rambam on sacrifices. Why do we have sacrifices? It's a concession to human nature. Right? Um, legal systems, remember, are there to create order in society, and order is always, to some extent, 
Or is always kind of um, a, 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 a good status quo, but maybe not the ideal. Right? That's part of what law is. Um, and therefore, it, as much as we would like the ideal to be more, um, part of law, the reason that law is not ethics, is that um, law takes human nature into account. Ruf Cook's essay on this is actually very interesting because when he says to this person who asks him, should I be a vegetarian, he says, no, there are certain things within yourself that you're ignoring. Now, that's obviously a psychological assessment that Ruf Cook was speaking to somebody who he knew and could, could speak to that person's particular nature. Um, but but I, I, I think when we think about law, we're not thinking about any one particular person, we're thinking about human nature in general. And therefore, Rav Cook's advice writ large um, is that pursuing an ideal might be counterproductive. We might find that if we don't have a certain outlet for human cruelty, it ends up expressing itself in other ways. And maybe in this sense, Hitler is the best example. Um, there's a fascinating essay, maybe and this is a fascinating story, actually, by Cynthia Ozick, um, called Bloodshed. Um, and one of the themes of the, of the story is sacrifices. And sacrifices, sacrifices, sacrifices serve. And, and, and she makes, and she, one of the characters in the story is a Holocaust survivor. And he says, we think, we think we're being more modern by, uh, more enlightened by issuing sacrifices. But in fact, the cruelty, human cruelty in the 20th century is greater than maybe any other century in human history. And could it be that sacrifices are there as an outlet for cruelty that, that otherwise gets expressed in other ways? Yeah? You say legal formalism. Are you talking about the, um, well, I mentioned my Anthony Scalia sort of location of the Texas self justifying? Yes. It does relate to legal formalism in, in the modern traditional sense. Reality? I heard the term it does it does relate to it does relate to, to, to legal formalism in a modern traditional sense. Um, yeah. Yeah. And if you read enough about legal formalism, there's a lot of discussion of legal formalism in modern legal theory. Um, all of it revolves around or a good deal of it revolves around the law as a self-contained system, right. Right? right? Which is part of what we're talking about. So law reality is Yeah, in other words, halacha exists in its own reality right. to, to a limited extent. Yeah, the rough Yeah, yeah. Is there a difference between ethical and moral? Sorry? Is there a difference between ethical? So I said that ethical, I suggested that ethical is specifically Jewish. I see more Right, versus more universal, because there's no mention of Kedusha by the law. No mention of what? Can you shop? Well, there, there is a, there's a connection to what that you said. Not by what? It says, says be holy. Don't, don't eat blood. Be holy. Let's say that. There is a connection. Goshen, yeah, I think Goshen T is related to that. With prohibition of blood. But you connected it, though. No, I didn't connect it. Well, I think mean, uh, there's a connection, though. If you, if you, look, if you look at the second there. So let me, let me look at Sorry, you had a question? Yeah, so then you were saying that in the time of the trial, that we're going to be, everyone will be at a more compassionate level, that we won't be sacrifices at all, because we just be vegetarians, just because 
the, and, and there's a notion that human society changes in a very fundamental way. That's that's the you know sort of that nature changes, right? The human nature changes, and possibly even that animal nature changes. Um, yeah. Is that? Did, did yeah, no, I get that. I totally get that. Okay. But where did I say? I just wanted to like. Yeah. 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 That's Isaiah. Isaiah. Louis Agoyo go for it. Wherever that is. Sorry. Louis Agoyo go for it. Yeah, wherever that is. Where is it? Um. Sure. Here. It's in Isaiah 11. Uh, six through eight, six through nine. Right, and then again, it shows up again in, later in Isaiah, I think in Isaiah 65. Yes, Isaiah 65, 25. Yeah. So, do we see that these rationales define? what the law is like, because we have all these movements, right, that say, like, maybe some people will say, like, the food is not kosher because it's made in this kind of slaughterhouse, or you may, some people might say, so just don't so even think about it. What we didn't get to was, was a, a more profound question, which is, if there's a point at which halakha becomes so formal that it loses connection with rationale, yeah. that is a very powerful question. And that is the force behind um, movements within the kosher observant community to instill a sense of ethical responsibility, instill a sense of, 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 um, of moral responsibility, a sense of environmental responsibility. Um, here, essentially, we're talking about a similar phenomenon that we're talking about with Tom. If, in fact, Kashrut has an ethical rationale, you always have recourse to go back to the rationale and say, look, Kashrut has to be connected to that. Right? That becomes hard at a certain point because kashrut becomes so formalized and so rigid, mm-hmm. it becomes hard to, to sort of re-infuse it. But there's always that potential there. There's always the arguments that you can make to somebody. How can you how can you eat that just based on the rigid formal law? Look at the rationale. Look why kashrut is here. They have tamamitz, but like oh, yeah, right. That's the force of tamamitz, or that's the force of something being a rationale. Even when the legal system diverges from that, there's always that sort of centripetal force pulling it back in. Okay. It kind of feels like we've been doing it all wrong, though. That's true. So it is so far. It's not, you know what I mean? Like Part of, yeah. I, I've been thinking about that a lot before, before this class. I think, this, this may be just my sense, um, we have that sense because with, with the rapid uh, mechanization of our, our food system. We have lost touch with um, with animals. We've lost touch with how our food is produced. I have a student who found a, he, he was so disturbed by by the ethics of eating meat that he became a chef um, because he said, if I'm going to eat meat, I'm going to shaft it. Uh, there is something to that. There is something, and I have another friend who was a vegetarian, a friend of my wife's who was a vegetarian for many years, 
And then for her senior thesis, she did it. She was doing sociology. She went and spent a year on a farm in Costa Rica. And she said that cured her. She was not a vegetarian. You live on a farm, and you have the animals, and you live with the animals, and you love the animals, and then you comply with them. Like, it's fine. It's totally normal. Um, there is something about the rapid pace of modernization that has distanced us and made everything much more formal. Um, in a way, even as recently as 100 or 150 years ago, it was not. There was a sense that shrita, which is, after all, a fairly ethical way of, of slaughtering, um, that, that people didn't, hadn't lost touch with that yet. It was so part of their daily lives and daily reality. Um, whereas now, you know, when you go to you know, when you go to the supermarket and you pull a piece of meat off the shelf, it's no different than, than you know, in the kosher section or the non-kosher section, the meat looks the same. Um, yes, we have lost touch with it, which is why I, I think I think there's there's a real enough uh, some there is a real there is a real need to to, to you know, reinvigorate kosher with this kind of. Okay, we have to we have to have to vacate the room. Thank you. Thank you.